0: We are now deep into our series, going through Genesis 1 through 11. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. Remember that the book of Genesis is about beginnings. God revealing to his people who he is. So we've been learning about who God is, and then also revealing to us who we are. Uh, Who better to tell us who we are than our maker? And so we learn from him in these first chapters of the Bible. And now after the garden, after the sin of Adam and Eve, we're going to learn today what the world's becoming after the fall. We will see what's going wrong, what's what's wrong with the world and wrong with man, and then also think about what is right as we seek to apply God's word to our lives. So we're looking together in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, the name Cain is a, comes from a term related to craftsmanship, like a smith. So she's saying, I have, with the Lord, I have made a man. Now again, it says, verse 2, she bore his brother abel and abel's name means a mere breath a vapor think of james four fourteen. life is a vapor so we see some foreshadowing of what's to come here and it says now abel was a keeper of sheep and cain a worker of the ground this is what their expertise their profession if you will a farmer and a shepherd it says, "In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So what is happening here? Uh, Many people think, and I thought, that the big deal here is that Cain just offered produce from the farm, and that Abel rightly offered a blood sacrifice. I've taught that, uh, and I do think this is possible, that this has something to do with it. It it could be as much as the idea that that Cain should have known to give a blood sacrifice, having heard the story from his parents of of death being required as a covering for the sin of Adam and Eve— Or at least this account was meant to be instructive going forward That people would be able to look back on Cain and Abel and say this one's not as good as as that one It's a possibility Uh, But the more that I think about it and and as I've studied through this passage even this week, I'm not so sure That the issue here is all about fruits and vegetables versus livestock versus sheep And here's why Uh, First of all, number one, this text calls these things that the men are bringing to the Lord offerings, not sacrifices. These are offerings, okay? If these were meant to be sacrifices, meaning for sin, then then this is a no-brainer. Blood is required for the remission of sin. But also, number two, in the Old Testament law, God gave instructions and a blessing of grain offerings. Gave instructions for how to do it. And called them, grain offerings, the most holy of food offerings, implying that there were other types of food offerings as well as, and that they were pleasing to the Lord. Uh, So God was not against offerings of gratitude and thanksgiving. And, And it would make sense, if you think about it, since Cain worked in the fields, that his giving, his offerings of thanksgiving would be given from his increase. Cain gave from his increase as a farmer, And Abel gave from his increase as a shepherd. So, this could be very well just fine. Uh, Number three, and this is the last one, and it may not be the most compelling argument, but this text does not specifically say that the issue at hand here was produce versus livestock. We don't see that in this text. However, it does say some other things. And it says them pretty explicitly, so let's go with what the text says directly as we study this passage today. Here are some observations that we need to make. Verse 3 says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Doesn't seem to be too harsh there, right? It just says Cain brought an offering. But then here's the contrast to that. Abel brought his first and his best. It says that he brought the firstborn and the fat portions, the fattest, the best. That's what Abel brought. Also in verses 4 and 5, it's important that we see that the Lord's regard or the lack thereof is attached to the person and to the offering distinctly. The language there separates these out so that we could say the Lord had regard for Abel and the Lord had regard for Abel's offering. And then in contrast to that, the Lord did not have regard for Cain, nor did he have regard for Cain's offering. You see how those are split up, and it's not just the offering, it's also the man? Remember that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Here's a key verse for us. Hebrews eleven four. 4, and this is the first part of the verse. It helps us to understand what's going on here. It says, recounting this story... Remember, Hebrews 11 is the chapter of faith. In the book of Hebrews, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. So what was the distinguishing factor even in that verse? It was by faith. By faith, it's the heart. So we can conclude then that Abel, having a sincere heart full of gratitude and faith, did what a person who is sincere and grateful and believing does. And he gave his first and his best. And then Cain, on the other hand, did what an insincere, (laughs) ungrateful, right, and doubting person would do in the form of this half-hearted and manipulative, if you will, religious observance. Simply put, Abel's heart was in it. Cain's wasn't, and you could tell. That seems to be the bottom line of this verse. Now think about this, when when a little child draws you a picture, it's always just so beautiful, isn't it? When a little one who doesn't know yet know how to stay inside the lines, and they bring this picture to you, and they have that big smile, and those bright eyes, and you love that picture, don't you? As... Poor as the artistry might be, you love that picture. Why? Because the picture's amazing? No, because the heart of that little child wants to give you something special. Right? Now, as that child grows and matures, especially if they love art, and especially if they're gifted in art, what do you expect to see as they get older? When they present to you pictures or drawings and then paintings, maybe even sculptures— They're going to grow in their excellence and skill. And if they sincerely love you, if they genuinely want to gift you with something special, then they're going to give you their very best. If you have somebody who is fantastic at art, and you know they're doing something for you, and they give this to you, and it's just some rudimentary drawing with a pencil on notebook paper— And they don't pay attention to you, they just give it to you and say, all right, there you go. And they start talking to their buddies and they don't pay attention to you. Is the heart in that? (laughs) Make sense? The heart behind it, with the maturity and the growth, brings about excellence. And what was Cain excellent in? He's a great farmer. So it makes sense that if he desperately, sincerely, humbly loved the Lord, he would bring to him his first and his best, just like Abel did. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on here. Now, we were told God did not have regard for Cain, and God did not have regard for Cain's offering. And so then we see in the rest of this verse, in verse 5, it says that Cain was very angry, and his face fell. You know, when you're angry, you're sad, you're depressed, you don't run around with your face beaming, right? That's not when the eyes are bright. Your face drops, your countenance drops. That's what happened with Cain here. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? There's further evidence here that Cain's heart lacked faith and sincerity. He rejected the idea. Think about this now. He rejected the idea that God could reject him, that God could reject his offering. Who's in charge here? In the heart of Cain, who's calling the shots? This is the birth of false religion. God, this is the way I'm doing this, and this is the way you're going to accept it. Here you go. For you to say otherwise is unfair. This is Cain's position. Uh, So, was God preeminent or of utmost importance to Cain? No, we can't say that. Did Cain see the Lord as holy and worthy of all praise? Well, no. Was God the Lord of Cain's life? Was Cain willing to submit himself to not only what God commanded, but also how God commanded? Yeah, obviously the answer is no, because Cain cries foul on God's response. Again, though, we see the initiating love of God here in that God comes to Cain, right? God comes to Cain in the midst of his rejection and asks questions just like he did with Adam and Eve. In the same way. Now, the wording here, we saw the face falling when Cain was angry. And the Lord says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And the word there in Hebrew means that your countenance will be, you'll be lifted up. So we have this word contrast here in the first, in the, in the end of verse 5 and the, in the end of verse 6 that your face has fallen in your anger. But if you will do well, if you'll repent and do well, you will be lifted up. Does that make sense? So what is the cure for Cain's anger? Repentance. Repentance. Now, did Abel give the best in his first because Abel just was being a good boy? Or was it by faith? Remember that sincerity there? So what is God fighting for here for Cain? Cain, you better get in line, boy. Don't you know how this is supposed to be? That's not what what God said. He says, Cain, if you'll do well, your countenance will be lifted up. God is fighting for Cain's joy. And where is Cain going to find his joy? Where did the joy well up in Abel that he would want to give his first and his best? In his love and sincerity towards God. Why is it great that he leadeth me? For by his hand. (laughs) That song that we just sang together tells us the reason why it's wonderful to be led by God isn't because of the circumstances, it's because of the hand that leads you. It's because it's God's. He is where joy is, and God is giving this to Cain to give him joy. That's the motivation. So we can be reminded here again, too, that your emotions are tied to your actions. Cain doubted. He distrusted the Lord. He gave a half-hearted offering And he didn't get what he wanted in response, in return, and so his emotions dropped. He was throwing a fit. And then God says to Cain, trust me, believe the truth, believe in me, you know what you need to do to make it right. If you do well, if you obey and give these right actions, then your emotions will be lifted up. You'll have joy. Remember Jesus said in John 15, keep my commandments that your joy may be full, not Half full, right? Full. And then in the rest of verse 7, God tells Cain what's coming if he doesn't repent. So, Cain, here are your options joy or this. This is the rest of verse 7 it says, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This word crouching here, sin crouching at the door, it's like an animal. The word would be used for an animal waiting to pounce on its prey for the kill. And if you will, it's crouching behind door number two. Jesus, or God uses the word, I said Jesus there. God uses the word at the door, right? So you have door number one and door number two. Door number one is if you do well. Door number two is if you do not do well. And behind that door, sin is crouching, waiting to conquer you, waiting to pounce on you. Sin's desire is to be your master. Think of the term that we hear later in the scriptures, slavery to sin. Slavery to sin. He says, though, you must rule over it, meaning you must subdue it. And so the question that we would have, naturally, is how? How would we subdue it? And this is a really good question. It's an important question. How do you successfully repent? And God answered this already in the previous verse. He said, do well. Do well. If you want to stop doing what's wrong, start doing what is right. Were you expecting something more profound? <laughs> it is a little bit more than that, but that's, that's basically it. Now, there is a place for just say no. I remember who all went through the D.A.R.E. program, the police initiative to, to keep kids off drugs. Just say no. And there is a place for just to say no. There absolutely is a place. There are times that you just have to say no. Joseph had to just say no at Potiphar's house, didn't he? When Potiphar's wife was getting after him and trying to isolate him and, and have him commit sin with her, he had to just say no, and he had to run. There is a time and a place to run. But eventually, if you continue to put yourself in that situation where you're constantly having to say no, you'll eventually say Yes, to what you should say no to. The answer is saying yes to something good in its place. And this is what the latter part of Ephesians 4 teaches us. Putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Here's the reality. You haven't successfully said no to a sinful act until you have successfully said yes. And I would say even habitually so this is my good habit, (laughs) you're successfully saying yes to something else. Now, that means we've got to be proactive, right? Repentance is proactive. And it means we've got to change our thinking. Because Cain did what he did because he wanted to do it. We've got to change our wanters. Which is why we've got to go back to the word and change our thinking. Now, Cain, verse 8 He spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This keeps going in the wrong direction, doesn't it? The idea here is that Cain spoke to his brother in a way that convinced him to go out to the field. So Cain convinced Abel, hey, let's go out to the field together. Premeditated murder. Okay? This is the first murder. And let's think about this now. Who was Cain angry with here? On the service, and we're just we're just thinking about the horizontal here, he killed Abel, right? So he's probably pretty angry with Abel. He's jealous toward Abel. But if there was jealousy toward Abel, it was because of the perceived injustice on God's part, that God would have regard for Abel and not for him, not for Cain. And Cain then, therefore, was angry with God and took it out on Abel. Uh, This is why every sin is first a sin against God. We have to reject him and his authority in our life before we do anything that he would say not to do, before we wouldn't find joy in running to him and obeying him and pleasing him in our lives. Every sin is first a sin against God verse 9, again, God proactively comes to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? It's kind of like back to Genesis 3, isn't it? As if God didn't know. <laughs> Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, Cain said, I do not know. <laughs> Am I my brother's keeper? Now, I think it's safe to say here to assume that it wasn't immediately following the act of the murder. That this happened, that God spoke to Cain? Can you imagine if it was, how pitiful that would have been? If in the act of killing Abel and Abel's dead body is there, that God says, Cain, where is Abel? I don't know. I don't think it happened like that. That'd be a little too ridiculous, wouldn't it? It'd be pitiful. Uh, But God, God's reaction in coming. uh, What is the answer to Cain's question? Am I my brother's keeper? What's the right answer to that question? Yeah. God never answers that directly, does he? But I think it's pretty much implied here, don't you? We are our brother's keeper. We need to take care of each other and serve one another. The Lord continues the questioning, what have you done? In verse 10 he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Think about this. Uh, Cain's profession and his expertise was to get stuff, good stuff, produce to come out of the ground, but now he's killed his brother and his brother's blood has gone into the ground. And God says, now you are cursed. There was already a curse, wasn't there? Think about this. Cain's expertise was in something that was already under a curse. And now amplify that. Expand on that. Now you are not going to be able to get anything out of this Verse 12 says when you work the ground It shall no longer yield to you its strength And you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth You would think I'm setting you up though. You would think That this curse would have brought Cain to his knees Brought him to humble repentance. Right? No. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Uh, Hello, Cain. what did you just do? What had Cain just done? He killed Abel. What is the very thing that he says is not acceptable at this point? For somebody to kill. Further evidence that Cain is still thinking he needs to call the shots here. Cain cries foul against God for this judgment that comes, this punishment that comes on him. And he says, it's too severe. You took away my livelihood. Someone's going to kill me. And God could say, Cain, where is Abel? Cain was just shown mercy. God showed Cain mercy here. He did not get what he deserved. In verse 15, then the Lord said to him, Cain, you're done. And then lightning came out of the sky, zap, and he was eliminated, right? You're being good Bereans there, and you're reading your Bible, and you wait a minute. <laughs> That's not how it went down. That's not how it happened. God is showing mercy to Cain. And further evidence here. Is God fighting for just an obedient Cain? You better get your act together, Cain. What did God say? If you do well, your countenance will be lifted. What does Cain need more than anything else right now? Not just obedience. He needs joy in the Lord. And God is continuing to bring this to him. The Lord said to him, verse 15, this is what it actually says, not so. Cain said, they're going to kill me. And God says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Now you can't exactly do the math on sevenfold. The idea here is... Expound on the vengeance that would be given and that's what they'll get You can't kill somebody seven times for committing murder, right? And the lord put a mark on cain Lest any who found him should attack him And cain went away from the presence of the lord and settled in the land of nod east of eden So god shows mercy to cain And promises not to show mercy on anybody who would kill him pretty interesting Certainly that would turn Cain around Certainly that would bring Cain to his knees that he would enjoy the lord forever But we find that the answer to that even is no Starting in verse 17. We see two tracks of lineage on display two tracks we see Cain's That comes down to the story of Lamech and we see Seth's Who eve we'll see later here believes to have replaced Abel. And they're living for a long time at this point. They're living to about 900 years or so, and we'll talk about that another week, okay? But they're healthy for a long time, and they're having babies for a long time. And it says that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. And it seems in this time, as things carry on, you still have the firstborn Cain and all that are under him, and then you have Seth. And Seth does seem to be a replacement for Abel because it says that Seth served the Lord. Okay? It says here, uh, but none of them followed the Lord until Seth and his son. Verse 23. This is Cain's line. Lamech said to his wives, his wives, notice the plural there? This is the first time we have recorded here the idea of two wives. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Sounds very authoritative. You wives of Lamech, speaking of himself in the third person, that's pretty cool. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. It's a big statement. In Cain-like fashion, here in Cain's line, Lamech decides how many wives are suitable for him. He justifies his killing and determines that his own security is warranted, figuratively at least, 70 times more, or 10 times more, do the math right, than Cain. Sounds like a really humble guy, right? Notice that God doesn't intervene at this point. He doesn't intervene. He doesn't say, Lamech, you got it, buddy. You're right. He doesn't come down and put a mark on Lamech that anybody would kill him would be avenged, right? God is nowhere in that picture. And just to note there, realize this, that not hearing God say no does not mean that he's saying yes. Do you get that? Not hearing God say no does not mean he's saying Yes. Let me say that in a different way Watch out for the open door method You know what I'm talking about? When we're trying to discern God's will and we say, well, you know, God's going to open doors and he's going to close doors While that may be true in a way That is not a way to discern God's will Case in point God told Cain Sin is crouching at the door Cain had an open door and he took it, and sin was crouching behind it, right? we got to be careful with that. Now, let's look at the contrast coming in the line of Seth. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then this is the big line here. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what's the main similarity we see between Abel and Seth as he replaces Abel and his son Enosh? They call upon the name of the Lord, which means they have sincere hearts as Abel did. Sincere hearts following the Lord. So at this point in history, as I said before, at this point in history, we have a growing number of people. We have a growing number of people who are living around 900 years. (laughs) They're having lots of babies. So there's a growing population. Imagine if your birth years are not from, you know, you're, I mean, physically able, right? Your teen years to whenever you're done having, able to have children. Uh, Imagine, take your life of 75 to 80 to 90 whatever years, now extend that to 900. You could have a lot of babies. And think about this. We've been under the curse for these thousands of years. Adam and Eve were made what? Were there there a lot of deficiencies in their DNA? Probably not. They were were perfect. (laughs) So you have a lot of healthy babies who live in a lot of healthy years. Right? And the things that we have pain in, there's pain in childbirth because of the curse, but you have to think about this early on. There may not have been as many miscarriages. There may not have been as many uh, deficiencies or deformities or, or birth defects or anything like that. You have these babies who are living a long time, who are having lots of babies, and then and, and there's the scary part. Here's the scary part. How many of them are following God? And this passage seems to indicate there are about two. <laughs> right? Seth, Enosh, and maybe their households but everybody else, no, they're not. And it took these years, and you had a genealogy that we skipped over here. Sorry about that, but we skipped over genealogy. You have generation after generation after generation after generation before Seth is born. So this has been a long time, and yet we only have evidence of these two and perhaps their households that are following the Lord. If left to ourselves and in rejection of God, and if we have 900 years to live, how bad could it get? Really, really, really bad, right? Sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. And we're going to find out next week that a disaster does happen, doesn't it? So, application. What are our big takeaways from this passage today? First of all, number one, your heart and your offering matter. Your heart and your offering or your offerings matter. Or said in another way, God cares about the excellence of your offering because he cares about your heart. God cares about your heart and then what your heart produces in your gift to him. It's not just about the output. If it's just about the output, that quickly turns into legalism, and then the results aren't really that good anyways, as Cain showed us. And by the way, God already owns everything. In Psalm 50, the cattle on a thousand hills, he says, I don't need your offerings. I don't need your bulls. I don't need your sheep. I already own it all. That's not the point. You're not buying something from him. Right? Look at me with Micah 6, 6 through 8. Turn real quick in your Bibles to Micah 6, 6 through 8. It says this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? What's the the rhetorical answer for all those? No, no, no. Verse 8. This might be a verse that you've memorized. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? To love kindness. Kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. Humbly. A heart of sincerity. A heart of love for him. It's about that relationship first. The other stuff is a fruit of that. It's a result of that. God cares about your offering because he cares first about your heart. And and giving offerings, we think about offerings in our context today. When we say we're going to take the offering, that's just our mind goes to money, right? Uh, Offerings are not just about money, But money is certainly a part of it. And just as an example, when the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 9 that the Lord loves a cheerful giver, remember that passage? What is that saying? The Lord loves a cheerful giver. It means a sincere, worshipful heart will give cheerfully as opposed to begrudgingly. And that may or may not result in more money. You realize that, right? It results in joy. That's what it results in, a joy for the giver. And that's what God wants for us. That's what God wanted for Cain. Joy in him. Joy in following him. And this also applies, and of course, to all of our service, all of our relationships, to all of our lives. Romans 12, 1 tells us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. So the way that I love my wife, the way that I love our children, that matters. The way that I serve here at the church matters. The way that I relate to my neighbors and to the community, it matters. The way that I work, that matters to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I should do it. All for the glory of God. All of it. When my heart is sincere, my worship and my service will be sincere, and it will only make sense for me then to pursue excellence. To give God my best, my first, in everything I do. And if I truly love him, why would I ever want to do anything less? So the issue here then, as we go on, is what defines excellence? If we're going to pursue excellence in everything we do because we have a sincere, loving heart, a worshipful heart for God, then what defines excellence? And who gets to define excellence? Who determines my best? And so, number one was your heart and your offering matter. Number two, God's on the throne. He is our final authority. He's our creator. He's perfect in knowledge and wisdom. God is holy and righteous in everything he does. So he gets to call the shots. He gets to do that. The way that we treat people, the way that we treat the people in our family, God gets to tell us how to do that. Uh, The way that we ought to love our neighbor, God gets to tell us that. The way we ought to use our tongues, our communication, as we talk with one another, God is our authority. He's in charge of that. The way that we do church, the way that we worship, the way that we function, God is in charge. Uh, The way that we find forgiveness. The way that we know that we're right with him. The way that we get atonement for our sin. The way that we come into a relationship with him, God determines that, and God has already determined that. Remember Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? Christians were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and there is no other way. No matter how badly anyone wants there to be another way, there is no other way. We don't get to decide that. Remember, I said earlier that Cain decided for himself how he was going to do offerings, what was going to be acceptable. That that was the birth of false religion. That's what it brought. That's why it's so it's so important that we know the scriptures. And that we want to submit to the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. So there's the authority. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. To tell you what's good and what's not, and where you're not, and what you need to do to get good. Right? That's all there in Scripture. That the man of God may be complete, perfect, and equipped for every Good work. Some of them, most of them, three quarters, every good work. The Bible is sufficient for all these things. So we got to watch out, Christians, when we say, Well, I've always thought, and then insert insert the rest there, right? "Uh, This is what I've always heard, or this is how I feel about, or this seems right to me, or this makes more sense to me. These sentences are based on I. They're based on me. And that is what Cain was guilty of. That's how false religions are formed. That's how bad doctrine is formed. Uh, This is one of the reasons that lost people hate religion. Think about this. When is religion empty? When it's not God's way. When we take it and give it something else, if Cain had gone on giving the way he was giving, would that have changed his life for the good? It would have been empty. It would have been empty. When religion becomes how I think God ought to function, it will always prove to be empty and it will always fail. And think about this too. This is how baby Christians who aren't discipled according to the word, it's how they never grow up. How they won't mature. No matter how old they might be and no matter how long they've been going to church. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. When that element is gone, when Christ is out of the picture, what are we discipling people to become? No better than us. And we need Jesus. So we've got to point people to him. So because God cares about my heart, and through that, God cares about my offering. And since by his grace he's given us new life in Christ, and by his grace in Christ he's given us sincere hearts, then, Christian, we will want to know, it'll be our desire to know how to live for him and give ourselves as offerings, to give him our first and to give him our best. And remember, that's where joy is. That's how we fight for joy. We get after this. We follow God. We love him with our whole heart, and we give him our first and our best. God, how do you want me to love my family? God, how do you want me to love my neighbor? God, how do you want me to work? Lord, how do you want me to serve? How do you want me to give? And since the way God gives us answers to all of our questions is in his word— And that is where we must go to hear from him. Church, let's be a people of humble, sincere, worshipful hearts that delight in knowing God through his word and then give ourselves, all of ourselves, as an offering that's pleasing to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you gave us your word. That we could know who you are. That we could know who we are. That we could see our great need and understand our sin and what it looks like as we reject you. God, we thank you that you gave of yourself in, in God the Son, Jesus Christ, that he willingly gave his life for us in our place on the cross that that was the offering, that was the sacrifice that you accept in payment for our sin. God, thank you for giving us salvation in him. And I pray, Lord, in, in Christ and as a church, God, give us grace to grow in our love for you, to grow in our delight in who you are, that we would fight for joy in you and have it as we give you our lives as living sacrifices. Thank you for sharing with us, teaching us, uh, giving us your words so that we would know uh, what real faith is. What re- real religion would look like and should look like. Help us to fight for it with all of our hearts for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.